Please pray with me. Father, help me to faithfully proclaim your word this morning so that your people are built up in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that lost souls are quickened today. Amen. Please turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. <clears throat> so today we are going to be looking at the passage that is most well known and understood to be the passage about uh, foot washing. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet. If you'll look with me, John 13, starting in verse number 1 and through verse number 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The beginning of chapter 13 is a major turning point in the gospel according to John. The first 12 chapters have primarily been revealing a rejection of Jesus by his own people, Israel. Jesus is the Christ that Israel had been waiting on for centuries. And yet, time and again, they completely rejected him. They did not hold to him as being the Messiah, the Christ of God. Even though the miraculous signs of turning water into wine, healing a 38-year lame man so that he walks, feeding thousands of people from five loaves and two fishes, healing a man born blind and then raising a man who had been dead for four days was not enough to convince them that he is the Christ. They reject him. The Jews continue to reject Jesus as the Son of God. And as Eric so faithfully last week explained and showed us from the text, that the culmination of all of that comes to the end of chapter 12 to say that they could not believe, for they were unable to believe. They had all the signs they needed. They had been shown things that no mere human could do, and they still did not believe. Now, hear me well. Chapter 13, verse 1 begins a major turning point in this book. It turns, Jesus turns toward those who did receive him and believed in his name. We begin to see Jesus turn his attention away from the world and to his people who are in the world. We've seen a continual rejection of Jesus as the one true Christ, but now Jesus turns his focus to his followers, to Christians, to the believers, particularly to his disciples. But we know from John 17 that he even prays for those who will become his followers. Yes, we see throughout the rest of the book of John that in very specific ways that Jesus is talking and pointing to his, to his followers. They are the branches. He is the vine where their nourishment will come from. He explains that he will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to guide and to direct them. But most importantly, what we're going to see in the rest of this book, in the rest of John's gospel of Jesus, is what we're going to see is that Jesus is directing his focus on his care and his people by setting his eyes directly on the cross. Hear me well. This is so important for understanding this passage and the rest of the book of John. Jesus sets his face toward the cross. All for his people. So let's turn now to the first point, which is in verse number 1 of chapter 13. Jesus' hour has come. We begin verse 1. He says, 
Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, throughout John, we've been seeing time and again where Jesus' hour had not yet come. It was not yet the right time. Well, this actually began when he was talking to his mother in chapter 2, verse number 4, at the wedding at Cana. And Jesus told her, he said, My hour has not yet come. Throughout the book, he is doing this. He is explaining it's not yet time. But now, now, Jesus recognizes his time. It is time. It's time because it is the feast of the Passover. And Jesus knows that he is about to depart out of this world to be with his Father. It is time for him to leave this place and to go to glory to be with his Father. Verse 1 continues, Having loved his own who were in the world. We see very clearly why Jesus came into the world. It is because he loved his own. This is where we see that Jesus is turning his attention toward Christians. He loved those people who were his very own possession. They were his own. Not like Israel in the first 12 chapters where they were his own because they were his people, right? They were of the same blood. But here we see this is going to be his, this is his people because of faith. And John finishes this statement in verse 1 by saying about Jesus. Look what he says. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Now, it's very important that we do not, we, we, we understand that he is not saying that there is a moment in time whenever he will stop loving his people. There is not a moment where Jesus is going to say, you know what, I don't love them anymore. No. To the contrary, Jesus fully loves his people throughout eternity future. There is never an end in sight. For there is no end. He will love them forever. He will love us forever and ever. And ever. And ever. You see how eternity works? He'll love you forever. But what he is doing is he is about to show them just how much he loves them. And what we're going to see is that the end is not a time whenever Jesus stops loving his people, but it is rather a time whenever he draws his last breath because he loves them so much. That's the end that Jesus has in mind. So let's look at the example that Jesus gives to us. The second point this morning, it takes humility to be cleansed by Jesus it takes humility to be cleansed by Jesus. This is verses 2 through 11. Look with me in verse number 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, remember that we, must, that we just saw in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour had now come. Now we see a hint 
of the beginning of the evil plot to betray Jesus. Now, it's nothing short of satanic and wicked plotting against the one man who had never done wrong. Let's look on in verse number 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, Jesus not only knows that his hour has come, but he also knows that he is the Son of God. And not only that, he also is the one who came from God, to he from heaven to earth. And we see in verse 3 that he has also been given all things. Now, let's think about that a minute. If Jesus has been given all things by God the Father, the Almighty One, then what do we think that Jesus may do now? He knows that Judas is the one who is about to betray him. He knows that he has all power of God to do as he wills. What will Jesus do? Maybe Jesus will correct the situation. Maybe Jesus will go to in front of his disciples and call Judas out. Maybe he'll put him to shame. Maybe he will destroy him. Maybe he will make everyone see his glory. He's all-powerful one. He can do that if he wills. He can do away with this wicked plot that is against him. What will he do? Let's look in verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus humbles himself to the lowliest, menial, earthly task, washing the feet of men. Foot washing was not for peers to do for one another. This task was left to the servants. What we see is a display of Jesus' love for his people. Instead of Jesus laying hold to his great power and condemning Judas, Jesus seeks to love his disciples by giving them a picture of humility. Even a picture of humility that shows them just how humble they can be by Washing Judas's feet, knowing that he is the betrayer. Jesus displays a love by washing his disciples' feet, and it is a symbol of cleansing them from their sins. And we're going to start to see that here in verse number six. Verse 6 begins, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Man, I love these communications between Jesus and Peter. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? No way. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand, but... You don't understand it now, but... Afterward, you will understand. And, and Peter still doesn't get it, right? Still doesn't get it. Jesus is helping Peter to understand that there is more to this foot washing than what meets the eye. 
But Peter cannot imagine Jesus, the one who he has seen do all of these miraculous signs and the one who has given him ultimate hope to be the one who is going to wash his feet. He just cannot see it happen. Look at verse number eight. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus helps Peter to humble himself. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Here we see that Jesus helps to rearrange the idea in Peter's mind as to what is going on. Now, Peter still does not understand. He still does not get what Jesus is talking about fully. But all he does know is what Jesus just said. And if he does not allow Jesus to wash him, then he will have no share with Jesus. And he doesn't want that, so he changes his tune. What does he say here in verse 9? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Okay, Jesus, wash me. Wash me. All of me, if that's what it takes. But now Jesus is about to unveil his purpose behind washing his disciples' feet. Look with me in verse 10. This is an extremely important verse to understand this passage. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. So, Jesus is pulling the curtain back. He's helping Peter to see. He pulls the curtain back so that he can understand a little bit better what he is trying to get across to him and to the disciples. What does he mean by washing the disciples' feet? Jesus tells his disciples, the one who is bathed does not need to wash. Rather, they are completely clean. Fully, completely clean. Jesus is showing them that his washing of their feet was pointing to the greater way in which he would soon be serving them. Listen here. Jesus is pointing to, as we just talked about in verse number 1, which is Jesus setting his eyes on the cross. Jesus knows that they have faith in him, which means that they have been completely clean. They're clean. Their sins have been washed away. And Jesus knows that he's about to go to the cross to solidify that reality about them. He is about to go there and he is about to rid them of their sins. They already have faith in him and now he's about to finish it. What Peter had to learn is that if Jesus was too great to wash his feet, then Jesus would definitely be too great to die on the cross for his sin. 
Peter had to have his feet washed by Jesus to learn that he would have to humble himself in order to accept such a humbling reality that the Son of God would die in his place. Do we see? Peter had to have his feet washed just so that he could humble himself to see that the cross was going to be Jesus, the Son of God, dying in his place. Praise be to God. Peter, do you see now? Do you see what I'm about to go do for you? If you've trusted, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are completely clean. Hear me well. The devil's accusations are all too often accurate and right about each and every one of us. And yet, the saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on the cross is even greater. The accusations may be accurate, but hear me, if you have trusted and you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to put off sin, then your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has completely washed you clean. But then, Jesus goes on in verse 10. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus knew that there was one, Judas, who was not clean. Even though Jesus had just washed his feet, he was not clean. And Judas, one of the twelve chosen, picked out by Jesus, was not clean. It was not on the part of Jesus' fault that he picked the wrong one. It was all a part of his plan. The scripture had to be fulfilled. We'll see that in a minute. Not every one of you are clean. In much the same way, there are people who are in churches who believe that they have been cleaned by Jesus, yet they are not clean. In order for you to be clean, you must be cleaned completely, totally, absolutely cleaned. You can't have part of your sins washed away and think that I can just hold on to these. No. Jesus dies, and if you accept those, his forgiveness, then he washes you completely of all of them, every one, big, little, hidden, open. By repentance of sin and placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you too can be clean. So today, this is what I want to tell you. Humble yourself. And if you're sitting there thinking that you don't need to humble yourself, then you are the very one who absolutely needs to humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord Almighty. Not before me, not before anybody else in here. Humble yourself before the Lord. For He is the one who is the King of all. He is the one who created you. And He is the one who is sustaining your life even today. Humble yourself before Him. Do not be haughty. Do not be prideful. Humble yourself. Peter had to humble himself. 
The disciples had to humble themselves, but Judas did not. He had pride, he had arrogance. And if you're not cleansed of all of your sins, and you do not get that right with the Lord, if you are not forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will spend an eternity separated from God, the one who made you and created you in his image, and this will be called hell. Humble yourself today and be fully cleansed by the Lord Jesus. Now we're going to see how Jesus tells his disciples to apply this truth in their lives for the sake of others. Third, it takes humility to serve other Christians. It takes humility to serve other Christians. Let's look now in verse number 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place there at the table, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? So Jesus points them back to the correlation between well, the washing of their feet and the cleansing of their sins. They should now see that the humbling of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, to wash their feet was a sign of this greater humbling that Jesus would do to take their sins on the cross for them. They should see this now. He's asking them this because he's about to give them a directive. I hope you see this. I hope you understand why I've done this for you and to you. Now I want you to do it to each other. Look what he says in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Now this, these two verses have created a lot of confusion in some churches. I don't know of any uh, personally, but... That, that still do, maybe have done foot washing and still do foot washing as an ordinance, a sacrament, or a rite. Now, there are three main reasons that I believe that churches should not perform foot washing as an ordinance of the church. And here they are. First, as I've laid out here, I do not believe that foot washing is the point of the passage. Rather, Jesus' point is to show his disciples just how much he loves them by taking the place of a servant and willingly going to the cross to die in their place on that cross to cleanse them from their sins. That's the point of the passage. He is doing the foot washing to point them to the greater reality of what he is going to do for them. Number two, there is nowhere in the Bible that speaks of such an ordinance being performed by any church. The only other place that foot washing is mentioned is in 1 Timothy 5.10, where foot washing is, a, is in a list of good deeds by, of hospitality by a widow in order to be included in the support of, list of the church. Number three, our brother D.A. Carson helps us with the third reason here, and, he, and I quote, the heart of Jesus' command, hear this, is a, is a humility and helpfulness toward brothers and sisters 
in Christ that may be cruelly distorted by a mere rite of foot washing that easily masks an unbroken spirit and haughty heart. So what his point is that, that if it's just mere foot washing, anybody can do that. Anybody can do that with a haughty heart, evil intentions. We could wash one another's feet and hate one another. But that's not Jesus' point. His point is that he loves them so much that he's showing them how much he loves them. So if Jesus didn't intend for Christians to wash one another's feet, then what did he want them to do? So what, what should they do? How can we apply verses 14 and 15? Well, we know that the answer is not to die for one another's sins. Amen? Right. So that was the point that Jesus had in his own life as to what he was doing for the disciples and for his people was he was pointing to the greater reality of dying for their sins, to cleanse them. We can't do that for one another. We're unable to do such a thing. Then what are we to do, Justin? Here it is. Look with me in verses 16 and 17. Helps us answer it. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Hear me. The point here that Jesus is making is that if the master, since he is greater than, the, if the master is greater than the servant, but the master is the one who has humbled himself, then so can the servant. And he goes on. He says, Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Well, the one, Jesus Christ, who is the one who sent. If he was the one who lowered himself to take the form of a servant, then we too must be able to do that. Christians have no excuse when we are called to serve one another. For our Lord and Master Jesus Christ humbled himself by taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If he was willing to do that for us, we can serve one another, no matter the role. My grandmother, Tommy Mae Dykes, was the community beautician. Some of you know, know what I mean by that. She had a little room off to the side of her house where she would, I think I got these terms right, I didn't ask Cammie before I got here, where they, she would cut, color, perm, and set ladies' hair. Okay? Without seeking to aggrandize her, she truly was the pillar of our community and in our church. Everyone loved her, and she was an extremely smart lady, and some of you are old enough to know what I mean by that. Not, not book smart. She was always working with her hands. She was often not slow to get after doing and working and being and all kind of things, Right? She had been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, and her body was wasting away. On a warm, sunny evening in April 1984, my grandmother asked my mother to wash her hair 
My mother adored her mother and gladly washed her hair. Soon thereafter, my grandmother drew her last breath on earth. Now, it took humility for my mother to wash the hair of a lady that she knew was on her deathbed. But my mother was happy to serve her mother. Why? It was because she loved her mother so much. It was, she was happy to do such a thing. And she loved her deeply because she knew that her mother loved her deeply. When it comes to serving one another, we must be willing to humble ourselves. And yet we can. Why? For we have been loved by Jesus to an even greater extent. Jesus loved us so much that we can love one another. Pride is the great enemy of humility. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. If you are someone that has a hard time taking the least desired task, or if you believe that you desire a higher recognized position, these are symptoms of a prideful heart. Do you believe that there are some tasks that are below you? Or do you willingly do whatever is needed without respect to how important that task seems to be? If we're honest with ourselves today, and I hope that we all will be before the Lord, we all have some issue with pride. All of us. We all believe that we deserve better than what we've been given. We all believe that some of the tasks that we may be asked to do are below our abilities or even our education. If this is true of you, be mindful that the one who has washed you and the one who has made you clean was willing to serve you all the way to the cross. And if our Lord has humbled himself and done this for us, then we certainly can humble ourselves and serve one another. But hold on. Jesus is not finished. Verse, chapter, uh, point four. Jesus' purpose of foretelling his betrayal. Jesus' purpose of foretelling his betrayal. Look with me here. We see throughout... This whole entire passage in chapter 13 that Jesus has been alluding to his betrayal. He's going to get a little more specific now. Jesus says in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. You see, Jesus tells the disciples here about their great responsibility to humble themselves and to serve one another as he has served them. But Jesus knows that there is one, there is one who is of the devil and wants nothing, not anything to do with humility and serving. Rather, we know about Judas a lot of things. One of them is that he helped himself to the money bags. He was greedy. He desired to have things that were not even his. And we know that soon that G Judas was about to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Ultimately, 
Jesus tells us that the reason that Judas isn't one of his is because Jesus didn't really choose him. He chose him as a disciple, but he didn't choose him as one of his. He picked him as a disciple, but he is not clean. He is still just as wicked at heart as he was before he met Jesus. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 41, 9. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And here it is. Jesus explains in verse number 19 why he is telling his disciples about his own betrayal. I am telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, that you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus uses the phrase, I am He, in this passage, which does not have a predicate. Hear me, hear me well. I know we're getting to the end. Hear me well. Look at what the word of the Lord says here. There is no predicate. And what I mean by that is, Jesus does not say, I am the light of the world. He does not say, I am the bread of life. That is not what he says here. What does he say? He says, I am he. This, throughout the Old Testament, when this phrase is used, by God, it is being said in a way that we would hear the quote, I am Yahweh and there is no other. That's what we would hear. I am He. Jesus is telling the disciples right there before them that he is about to betray, be betrayed. And he wants them to know that he knows that he's about to be betrayed even before anybody else in the world does. He wants them to know so that when they see it, they will know that this is all according to plan. Don't be alarmed when you see me betrayed by Judas. Don't be alarmed when you see me go to the cross. Don't be alarmed. Don't think that things are out of control in the world when you see me hanging there. No. No. According to plan, I am He. Believe me, is what Jesus says. Believe me. When you see it take place, know that I am If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today as your Savior, I beg you, this is not put on show. This is not just doing church on Sundays. This is a reality that there is your soul hanging in the balance. And the Lord Jesus Christ has brought you to the point so that you may hear the word of the Lord and that you would be able to say, yes, I need him. I need his cleansing. Do it today. Do it now. Trust in Him. Give your whole life over to Him. Now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we do church primarily, right, for the body, 
majority, vast majority of people sitting here are because we want to be here, because we love the Lord Jesus, because of what he's done for us. If the third person of the Trinity, excuse me, the second person of the Trinity went to the cross to die for you and for me, then we can serve one another. No matter how hard you try to love and to serve one another faithfully, I will promise you that you will fail some. You won't have the right attitude. You won't have the right heart. You won't have the right desire within you, the right motivations in order to serve sometimes. And listen to me. Be alleviated this morning to know that the Lord Jesus died for that too. Praise God. And if you have ever wondered just how much the Lord Jesus Christ loves you, know that he loved you all the way to the end. To the end which points to the cross where he will draw his last breath on your behalf. And then, it's not over. John actually points us to the cross in a delightful, glorious, exalting way. What does he do? He points us to the cross to say, it didn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the dead. See, Jesus not only died for you, he also rose for you. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and soon, very soon, he's coming back to get you. He loved you all the way to the end. And then for eternity. Let's pray. Father, Help us to be assured of the great love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Grow us in our love for one another that produces a humility that we'll seek to serve one another with great joy. Father, we thank you for who you are. Jesus, we praise you for what you have done for us. And Spirit, thank you for guiding, sealing directing our daily lives. Amen.